Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is the channel that loves atheists. And today we're making a response to Stephen Woodford of Rationality Rules as he responds to capturing Christianity's Cameron Bertuzzi and famous American philosopher and apologist William Lane Craig as they respond to atheist comedian George Carlin. This is an interesting one. It has to do with eternity, the infinite, heaven and hell, and uh, divine judgment. So uh, if that floats your boat, then this is going to be a great episode, I think. And so we're going to jump right in and not spend too much time. I've responded to Stephen Woodford in the past. And so um, anyone who has watched those knows that anything I say in these videos is directed toward ideas, not persons. I don't attack persons. We should be loving, gentle, and friendly toward persons. But ideas are not persons. And some of the greatest travesties in the history of humankind has happened because people were afraid to speak out against bad ideas. So uh, if you see this, Stephen, none of this is directed toward you. This is directed toward ideas. And you may be the one espousing those ideas, but we're going to jump right in and hear what George Carlin, the atheist comedian, had to say. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. Yeah, so there you go. And I think George Carlin has passed away, I think, in 2008. So, um, so you know, we're not, you hate to speak ill of the dead. But again, ideas. We're responding to ideas. Well, William Lane Craig responds to this. And uh, let's go ahead and open it up and see what Craig has had to say. Because otherwise, I'm just going to end up, you know, covering the same territory that he and Cameron already covered. But let's just jump into this. After viewing the opening clip in this video, but he loves you. Here's how Craig responded. Well, Kevin, this isn't serious critique. This is comedy. <laughs> oh well, if it's just comedy, then in for a penny, in for a pound, I say. There we go. Cameron is now officially Kevin. Well, Kevin, this isn't serious critique. This is comedy. Um, indeed, it's it's mockery. Actually, it's both. The two are not mutually exclusive. One can express a very serious critique through the vehicle of humor. Yeah, and obviously, William Lane Craig is not oblivious to that, right? Uh, it is a fair point. Stephen is right that humor can be used to convey ideas, but of course Craig knows that. And I think you know that Craig knows that, right? If Stephen spent half as much time trying to understand what Craig is saying as he does trying to fortify the statements of these atheist comics, we might get something a bit more meaningful in his response videos. Craig means that Carlin doesn't seem to be affording the question the seriousness that it deserves and has received for nearly 2,000 years from some of the highest thinkers in various forms of academia. That's also why he corrects the caricature with serious categories. In the video, um, Craig points out that it's not some man in the sky, but that God is transcendent and, and spaceless, timeless, all these kind of things. It's not that he's just trying to suck the humor out of it. It's that he's trying to say, look, this is kind of a serious thing that we can talk about on a higher level. Um, of course, humor can be used to convey ideas, uh, but sometimes it's good to take what someone is saying in a humorous context and um, point out that what all we always seem to be getting here is chest thumping and um, and uh, mockery and that sort of thing, which is what Craig says it is, and that that's really all that is there. It's not that you can't take the central idea that Carlin is putting forward 
and formulate it into, say, an argument with premises or something like that. Um, but that's not what we got. What we got, Craig's point is that it seems like, yeah, you can com you can combine humor with a point to make a point in a humorous way that might make it more memorable and go down more easily, just like rationality rules seems to uh, to point out rightly. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. It, it, it seems to be that what we're getting is just mockery. There's not really any serious work being done here. Uh, but yeah, again, I think rationality rules is right to point out that humor can be used as a vehicle. I just want to say, leave it to YouTubers to encourage their audience to stick with chest thumping and mockery rather than developing arguments based on precision, because that would be good at a time like this. I mean, you're talking to a community of people on YouTube, many of whom are young guys. Let's be honest about it. There are a lot of women, but YouTube uh, atheism uh, has a lot of young men. And we want to encourage young men and young women to read, read books uh, look for serious argumentation, read journal articles, use precision. And we know that Rationality Rules loves Christopher Hitchens, and we see a lot of Hitchens on here. Hitchens validated, he was an intellectual who kind of somewhat validated these bumper sticker tropes, and that's why much of YouTube atheism has played off of the Christopher Hitchens style of approach. Um, and I think, as I've said many times, Hitchens is an incredible, was an incredible um, rhetorician. He, he was great at the turn of phrase. Um, a philosopher, he was not. And um, that should be obvious to anyone who has taken the time to see how did he engage with some of the best arguments for the Christian position. Not really at all, not in some precise way, not with good argumentation. It was with humor. It was with uh, a clever turn of phrase, as I say. So I admire him in that way. But what he did was to validate this bumper sticker, chest thump approach to the YouTube community of atheists. Not that they're all that way. They're not. There's some very thoughtful atheists that, that, that I see on this channel commenting. And I appreciate you. And I appreciate those who have channels who are that way. But this happens quite a bit. And we don't want to encourage people to just stick with these kind of humorous, mocking sort of things. It does. It, it is effective. I'll tell you that. I mean, that's that's true. So if all you're trying to do is persuade people, then I mean, yeah, that is a way of doing it. But it's kind of the cheapest way of doing it. It's one of the more shallow ways of doing it. So anyway, uh, just wanted to point all of that out. In the end, yeah, you can use humor to make a point. Okay. Now, with the next clip, what Rationality Rules wants to do is to get to the heart of the judgment issue here. And what he wants to say is, let's imagine you have one person who is responsible for having killed one other person. And you've got another person who and he uses historical figures for this, but you've got another person who, let's say, is responsible for the deaths of 40 million people. Um, you would think that, you know, if you go with an intuitive understanding of justice, you know, like eye for eye justice, <laughs> that seems to be a, a concept that uh, biblically minded Christians are familiar with. Um, that sort of justice that he he seems to, you know, mention himself as being somewhat intuitive would lead you to what seems like a sensible conclusion that the, the person who's responsible for 40 million deaths deserves a more severe punishment than the person who is responsible for one death, right? So having set that up, let's go ahead and hear what he says with that right now. Now the scales of justice dictate that we issue a punishment that fits the crime, but here lies the contradiction of issuing an infinite punishment, hell, for a finite crime. One minus infinity is minus infinity. That is, by definition, infinitely disproportionate. 
that is not justice, and it certainly isn't mercy. It is, in fact, grotesquely immoral. The same is true, of course, of 40 million minus infinity. To quote Blaise Pascal, the finite is annihilated in the presence of the infinite and becomes a pure nothing. Or as the biochemist Isaac Asimov put it, infinite torture can only be punishment for infinite evil, and I don't believe that infinite evil can be said to exist, even in the case of Hitler. All right, so um, two things that we need to talk about here. Number one is that there are two different understandings of the nature of hell. Um, I mean, there are more than two, but among evangelicals, there are two that I think are viable positions um, that, that have a possibility of, of being true. There is the, the, what is called the traditionalist perspective, which is the eternal conscious torment view, which seems to be the only one that Stephen's aware of, at least going by this video, the idea that you will suffer um, for all eternity. It's eternal conscious suffering. And it is true that for most of church history, most of the church has held to that traditional view, although there seems to be a shift going on with that. Um, and then there is what is called conditional immortality. And on the conditional immortality view, there's, there's an, an annihilationism that's involved where ultimately you suffer and then you die or you just die or you suffer commensurate to your crimes and you die. You can see already that on that view and the very fact that that is a possible view at all pretty much shuts the mouths of people bringing this allegation once they understand that that is something that has been held even back to the early church, by the way. Um, but let's let's talk about uh, this for just a minute approaching. So here's the thing he says in, in, in infinite in infinity kind of equalizes these punishments. So if everybody gets an infinite punishment, then the person who killed one person versus the person who's responsible for the deaths of 40 million people, they're both suffering. And even if I'll help him out here, even if they had differing degrees of suffering, like let's say the intensity is greater for one or the other, it does equal out in infinity, right? If you're both going to multiply this by infinity, then it equals out and you have the same punishment which doesn't seem right, doesn't seem just, because this person has, uh, has only sinned uh, or has only killed one person only, and this other person is responsible for 40 million. It seems like there should be a difference there, but if you maximize it to infinity, these things equal out, and there isn't a difference ultimately. Um, there's a couple of problems with this. First of all, um, I think that there is a major fundamental problem in the understanding of sin on the Christian worldview by Stephen Woodford. And that is that he is thinking, I'm not that bad. And that person over there is really bad. So they deserve worse than I deserve. And that might be true. But it's not necessarily or obviously true. This is to underappreciate the holiness of God. That when we sin against God, we are sinning against an everlasting being, and we are sinning against a maximally great being. And that is no small thing, even if in your eyes or in my eyes, the sin isn't that big of a deal. The penalty for sinning against an everlasting God might just be an everlasting penalty. And it may be that you think that other people are so much worse than you, or their crimes amount to far worse than you could ever conceive of yourself partly because you underappreciate the amount of sin that the, the, how severe the sins are that even by society standards, good people are committing. So I think that's one thing to sin against an everlasting God might just earn you an everlasting penalty. That just may be the way it is. Uh, 
On the other hand, let's take this from the traditional perspective. There are some other things that you can say. William Lane Craig, for example, has not been silent about his suggestion that perhaps the reason that one stays in hell everlastingly is not because God is intending that. It could be, for example, that you would have suffered commensurate to your crimes and then been released, except for the fact that this is what I mentioned. I said to Craig that I thought this could be called something like the eternal offender answer. And I don't know if I got that from somewhere, if I come up on my own, but he said, yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it. It's the eternal offender answer. And on the eternal offender idea, what you're doing is what you're saying is that the person may have been released after they suffered commensurate to their crimes. The problem is that um, as they continue to remain in hell, uh, they hate God all the more, and in hating God all the more, they are then sinning all the more and then condemning them for a longer period of time, and this extrapolates out without end. Well, that would resolve the dilemma. Now, you say, but yeah, but how do I know that's true? Well, uh, I think one could make a case for that, frankly. There, there are people who have, who have done that. But the fact that that is even possibly true serves as a defeater to the claim that this just is unjust or something like that. It should also be mentioned that many, uh, I think most, if not all the other apologists I'm aware of, um, and I'm talking about conser theologically conservative guys, uh, don't think of hell as literal fire. But that fire is from an honor and shame culture. That is imagery. In fact, it's imagery that is borrowed. When you take, for example, the fire imagery in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus is talking about it's better you cut off your arm uh, than to go to hell. And uh, Gehenna is actually the word there. Um, and, and, and go to heaven with one arm and to go to hell with two arms and the, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. This is honor shame language. And it's actually borrowed from the Old Testament. Um, so the, the idea here is that for many people that it's eternal conscious suffering, but that doesn't mean that there's like literal fire, billions of years of your face melting off and then you're just getting started or something like that. That's, that's not what a lot of people hold to. So that's, these are all important things to mention. And I think we've already seen at least one defeater uh, to this, this whole thing. Um, so, so number one, I think we should recognize that um, while the sins may not warrant an infinity in your mind, they are qualitatively infinite when you sin against a holy God. So when Hitler does a Holocaust and you and I, um, you know, get mad and wave at someone without using all of our fingers on the road, right? Um, when, we, when that's going on, what's, what's actually happening is we are sinning against God and that sin is therefore qualitatively infinite, just like Hitler's sins were qualitatively infinite. It doesn't mean that boots on the ground his sins don't have bigger ramifications. They certainly do. But I think that's an important thing to mention. And um, secondly, we've got that eternal offender answer that I think is, is important to mention. Also, it's important to mention that the punishment never actually will reach infinity, right? It is true that in, in, in the infinite future, these punishments would equal out. But that actually isn't what happens. Uh, with what we're talking about here is a potential infinite as time is moving forward, always approaching the infinite, but never actually arriving there. So that's all important. But now let's move on to talk a little bit about conditional immortality. And I don't really think much more needs to be said. There are defenders of conditional immortality. As I say, that's a growing movement. I'm going to be speaking at the Rethinking Hell Conference in Seattle just uh, about a month from the time of this recording. And on their view, some of them believe you just die. 
Um, some believe that you suffer commensurate to your crimes and die. Um, so that's a way of understanding this that circumvents all the problems that Stephen brings. And it's not ad hoc because it has existed since the time of the early church. So I think that this criticism fails, frankly. Um, it may mean that you are less aware of what Craig holds, like the eternal offender answer. It may be that you haven't looked into how Christians answer this stuff with systematic theology. But I think all of these are important. All right, let's move on to the next thing now, and let's see what he has to say about interpretation. And the list of 10 things, I take it that that's a reference to the Ten Commandments. And it's neither the teaching of Old Testament Judaism nor Christianity that if you break any of the Ten Commandments, God is going to send you to burn in hell uh, and to torture you. Well, that depends on your interpretation. I mean, I'll play now, for instance, just two preachers voicing an opposing view. And I think 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 through 9 is clarifying. It says this, he'll punish those who do not know and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Heaven and hell are a matter of divine judgment. And divine judgment is actually a good thing. It's something we long for. And in the end, God will rule justly. He will execute judgment. But in either case, whether an all-powerful God condemns you to an infinite punishment himself, or he stands idle as an infinite punishment descends upon you, it follows that he cannot be omnibenevolent. Okay, um, first of all, I just love that moment with rationality rules. Well. Let's hear that again. Yeah, I love it. Um, anyway, let's uh, let's let's get back to this. So, Stephen, see, this is really odd. I had to really listen to this, try and figure out, because I know what these guys are saying. I'm I'm listening. I'm trying to think. What is it that Stephen thinks is being said? Stephen seems to think that on the one hand, Craig doesn't see this as good judging, uh, God judging sinful man, whereas these other guys do see it that way. Odd. Craig just wrote a book about the atonement in which he covers penal substitution. Rather, he specifically says that Judaism doesn't teach that you would go to hell for breaking the Ten Commandments, um, and, and, and Christianity doesn't hold that. Well, Judaism certainly didn't, hold, didn't teach that you would go to hell for breaking the Ten Commandments, and the New Covenant we are in is saying that we are all sinners, and so you don't go to heaven or hell based on a particular sin. You go to heaven or hell based on whether you have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and uh, trusted Jesus and know God. Now, there's a couple of important things that need to be mentioned here that um, that when he talked about, when he played these clips of these preachers, I have no idea who those preachers are. I know that the second guy, it said RZIM, so he's a part of RZIM or something. I don't know. I don't know who these, these guys are. But I can tell you this, the first guy got it wrong. He misquoted the passage. And if you're seeing this and you are that guy, I'm sorry. I'm just telling you what I'm, what I'm seeing here. So uh, the first preacher misquotes, uh, the passage in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. He says he'll punish those who do not know and obey the gospel. Those who do not know and obey the gospel. Now, that, that is actually um, an important uh, thing not to mess up because it's actually, it's idotheon or theos. It's know God and obey the gospel. Um, so, so the point is not that you have to know and obey the gospel. 
I mean, that would be important, but that, that would then get us into it. If it said that, we would have to go off on this whole thing about the, the fate of the unevangelized, what happens to people who never hear the gospel and all, all that kind of thing. What we're talking about here is you have to know God and obey the gospel. But it's important. I think what, first of all, there's nothing about the Ten Commandments here <laughs> directly, right? I think what Rationality Rules is trying to point out here is that this preacher thinks that if you don't obey the gospel— uh, then that means you're going to go to hell, according to this text, or you're going to receive judgment, we should say. Um, and so, therefore, it's just the same as saying, if you don't obey the Ten Commandments, you're going to go to hell, or something like that. So even though it wouldn't be a direct response to what Craig has said, it would be making a similar point. That's me trying to steal man, uh, Stephen right there. Um, I wish he would do that for Craig, but whatever. However, um, according to... Charles A. Wanamaker, in his The Epistles of the Thessalonians, a commentary on the Greek text, um, he says, quote, while the expression those not knowing God may be related to the idea in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Now, specifically, we can think about Romans 1, 20, which I quote all the time on the show. The invisible things of God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made. The idea then would be that mankind has generally, he goes on, the humankind has generally refused to acknowledge God and therefore can be said not to know God. So the, so the language of 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 like, is much like Paul's language elsewhere, and it cannot be reduced to mere theological propositions. So the idea here about knowing God is you can know God. It's not like you don't know God because God hasn't made it possible for you to know him. No, you could know God. Now, he goes on to, to talk about this um, issue of uh, what, what is actually going on here. And he wants to point out that what this passage, what this verse is actually doing more than, uh, well, let me read what he says and then we'll get back to it. It, it. What it does is to demarcate the difference between the elect and those who were outside, outside of what? Outside of the community of faith, especially those who persecute the elect. So what Paul is trying to, I mean, he's, he's praising, but at the same time, he's, he's giving kind of a veiled warning here. Don't be like those on the outside who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. Okay, that's, that's the important thing here. And according to Leon Morris in his First and Second Thessalonians, an introduction and commentary, volume 13, um, he says, those who do not obey the gospel form a specific example of the foregoing. They reject the ultimate revelation of God's saving activity. See, the idea here isn't, isn't necessarily just about keeping a bunch of rules. Now, it's, it's, it's more than that. Now, keeping rules is important. Um, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, my sometimes co-host on Trinity Radio, actually pointed out there's something like 95 rules mentioned in, in the book of Romans. So everybody thinks about the fact that, oh, it's you just believe on faith and it's like an antinomianism or something. It's not like that. Rules are important. But a, a good integration of Paul and James in the Bible tells us that, no, it's, it's, it's not because of your works that you're saved. It's by grace through faith. But the works should be there if you are truly in faith, if you're exercising faith, if you have grace, then the works should be there. So he'll, uh, he'll punish those who do not know God and obey the gospel. That's the category of persons who are going to be okay, right? Is those people who know God and obey the gospels. It's not, it's not saying that if, if someone fails at a particular time to obey uh, something related to the gospel, then that means that they're going to be lost. And to obey the gospel is to trust 
Jesus, to believe Jesus, repent of your sins, trust Jesus. All right. So um, I don't know exactly what he thought was being said there. And maybe this preacher misquoting the passage hurt him a little bit, but there's some scholarship on it. Um, the second guy from RZIM is just saying that, that, that there's judgment and that judgment is ultimately an exercise of God's justice. And that's a good thing because a good God will be just. If he's not just, then he's not good. So in that sense, judgment is actually a good thing, even if it's not pleasant to the person experiencing the judgment. So th that's not something that Craig would disagree with. It's not really a question. He misses the point. He's making a career out of missing the point, it looks like. Um, it's not about whether God is standing idly by. That's, that's not or, or is actively exercising judgment. That, that's not the point. The, the point is, God's not kicking you out because you mess up at one particular point. It's that there is judgment because God is just, uh, but he's provided a way for you to be saved from your sins. I, I don't know. Let's go on to the next thing and we'll get a little more detail on this. Um, so uh, let's see. Yeah, God has made us an offer we can't refuse. He says, look, Listen, you can either accept my loving and gracious pardon. And gracious pardon? Or I won't prevent bad things from happening to you. You see, you've been sentenced to hell, and it's entirely up to you. Well, it's entirely up to us. Whether or not you accept my mercy. Out of mercy? By virtue of me being omnibenevolent, I love you. And by virtue of me being omnipotent, I could save you from the hell that I've created. But I won't. Not until you get on your knees, pretend that I exist, and hallow my name. Unless you grovel, I will abandon you to a fate infinitely worse than any crime you could possibly commit. All right, so the language exercised there by Stephen, though snarky and in mockery, is so he gets so close to like actually getting this. But did he quite get all the way there? Yeah, that's what I thought. So let's let's take a look at um, this thing. So God is omnibenevolent. He's all loving. He's also all just, right? Those, those are the things. Now, um, you plug these things in and you get the cross. You plug these things in, you get the judgment. You plug these things in and it all makes sense. Justice, the justice of God, his goodness and his love. Um, people that have listened to this show have heard me say this, but I want to make it very, very clear. It's good to hear it by repetition. Here's the thing. If God is maximally good, as we say that God is, God is good. If God is maximally good, then yes, he's going to be loving, maximally loving, but also maximally just. He's going to dispense justice. Because if you don't dispense justice, which isn't always pleasant, then you're not as good. And the classic example is, let's say that we caught Osama bin Laden and um, you know, after we captured him, we, we didn't actually kill him. We captured him and we brought him home. And uh, let's just say that rather than putting him on trial or uh, putting him in prison or, or whatever else, we just said, you know, let's just, you know, he, let's, that's not nice. Let's give him a hug and pat him on the back and just tell him not to do it again. Now, if that were the case, would that be good? I think your intuition tells you that would not be good. Why wouldn't it be good? Because it's not just. It has to be just if it's going to be good. So even though judgment isn't pleasant, and the atheists online capitalize on the unpleasantness of judgment because they don't like it, and I understand that. I don't always like it. But the fact of the matter is, if God is good, he's got to do that. He's got to be just. 
You say, well, then that means we go to hell. That's not fair. Well, okay, but guess what? There's actually a way. See, it's not, see, God's nature, it's not like God's just idly standing by. He doesn't have to let this happen. No, 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 I'm sorry. If you want a good God, you've got to understand that a good God is going to act justly. I think actually what the atheist sounds like they want, if they were to think about it in these philosophical and theological terms, is they want a less good God. That's what they must want, a less good God, to, get, to treat them the way they would like to be treated, that they can be Lord in a certain sense. I'm not saying that in the way that your preacher might say that. I'm saying that based on the theological framing here. Because if you want a maximally good God, you're going to get judgment. And he, and he must act justly or else he's not good. And since he is good, he must act justly. He must. So judgment. So hell. But guess what? He also loves you. So what does a God who's maximally just and maximally loving, how does he function? Well, he wants to find a way to make a way out of this situation for these people who have sinned. And so what does he do? He's got to act justly. There has to be a, a penalty for this, for this sin. What's he going to do? Well, there is one way. They could pay for it themselves, and that would mean hell, and that would mean judgment. And some will choose that. But there's another option. And that option is, if there were an everlasting person, if there were a person who himself was maximally good, maximally loving, maximally just and sinless, who could be a representative for mankind as a head of the human race and take all of that, all of that penalty on their behalf, freeing them. Well, that would do it. God would have exercised the just penalty on humanity, but at the same time, he would have made a way for his people because of his love to be redeemed. And that's Jesus. That's the cross. And I think that you have to recognize that this justice is sensible. As I've said many times, I don't know who came up with this. It wasn't me, but, but if you kill a cat, okay, there's a penalty for killing a cat. You might have to pay a fine. You might have to go to jail overnight. I don't know because I don't kill cats. But there's a penalty. There's a much bigger penalty for killing a man or a woman. It's equal to your own life. You may end up having to go to prison for the rest of your life. You may receive capital punishment, but, but there's something equal about that. Not like the cat. The cat is understood to be valued less than a man, less than a woman. So the penalty is less. The penalty is the same for a man. Well, what happens if you sin against God? Now, your natural stair step of intuition has led you this sort of understanding that even Stephen hints at earlier, that this, this correspondence of justice, you see it with the cat, you see it with, with the man, it's going up, what about to God? Well, qualitatively, it's infinite. It's, it's an everlasting punishment. Either you suffer consciously forever, um, or as the, as the traditionalist would have it, or as the conditional immortality folks would have it, you're dead everlastingly, and the punishment is everlasting there. But in either case, what you need to understand is an everlasting person could step in and then the just penalty could be satisfied for all of humanity. And that is a powerful thing and it makes sense of our intuitions about justice. So um, I hope that that's helpful. Now let's move on to the next thing. I think this is the, uh, yeah, here we go. Furthermore, here's some other divine logic to get your head around. Due to the nature of infinity, whether you end up in hell because you're a murderous warlord, stole a loaf of bread to feed your starving family, or simply fell in love with someone of the same sex, the result is exactly the same. Eternal fire and brimstone. 
Whether your crime has a numerical value of 1 or 40 million, the sentence is the same, minus infinity. How's that for justice? You know, I really, I, 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 from all I can tell, I like Stephen as a person, so I hate to say something that sounds like I'm throwing a punch, but it reminds me of what Jordan Peterson said about Sam Harris in a clip I saw on YouTube. He was asked what he, who he thought was the, you know, the, per, the smartest person or something, most intellectual that he had you know, kind of debated with. And I think he said Sam Harris. And he said, but even with Sam Harris, when you read what he has to say, he said often it sounds like um, an angry 13-year-old boy atheist uh, raging against the most fundamentalist understanding of Christianity. And often I see this. It's, it's, like, it's, like, you're, it's like what I see... The, the much of the YouTube atheist community, many of whom I love, I mean, I love all of them, but like, I actually like the people, a lot of them, but I see so many of them raging against the most fundamentalist understanding of Christianity. So here he wants to talk about literal fire and brimstone uh, for little boys who steal uh, bread to feed their family or something. I mean, do you, do you see the dripping with emotional appeal here? Um, but hey, if that's what's happening, then, then it's a fair point. But the point is we are all sinners. It, it, look, it, you've done enough sinning of your own. We all have, okay? Whatever you think about original sin, whatever we want to say about that theologically is somewhat irrelevant because we all do enough sin of our own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says, Romans 3. So, you know, the little boy stealing bread to feed his family or the gay guys kissing or whatever you threw up there or a war criminal and it all seems the same. Here we see again the sins against a holy God and qualitatively how heavy those sins are, even if from a human perspective, they're not that bad. Yeah, some sins here have much further reaching ramifications, and the destruction is much greater for, say, a war criminal versus a gay couple, at least without a butterfly effect. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's relatively far less. However, we are misunderstanding how God sees things and how holy he is. He is maximally holy. And it's a way of saying, hey, I'm not that bad. And I get that's a popular thing in the atheist community to say, we're not that bad. Hey, you're not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. And from a human perspective, perspective, I get that. I don't think any of you are horrible people. But here's the thing. We're all sinners and in need of a savior. What I want rationality rules to get is you don't ultimately go to heaven or hell based on whether or not you committed this sin or that sin or any particular sin. You go to heaven or hell based on whether you know Jesus because we're all sinners and he covers all our sins. And our sins are heavier than you think that they are. Um, and so I, I hope that that, and, and beyond that, with the infinity thing, I mean, that we've already answered that in a previous thing. Uh, I wanna, I wanna, now, he takes a pretty serious blow here, or gives a serious blow. And, and I want to absorb that blow, and, th and then I want to kind of fire back. So let's look at this. When those that preach this nonsense presume to lecture us on morality, mockery is, quite frankly, the kindest response at our disposal. Yeah, you know, the kind of people that preach this, they're going to try to tell me about morality. Well, then you're going to get mocked. That's basically what he's saying. Again, encouraging the YouTube listeners that, hey, mockery is good enough. Don't worry with precise argumentation or anything like that. Just keep keep throwing hitchens at them. I don't think he would say that. But I do think that that is an, I don't even know that he thinks that. But that is an impression that is given, it sounds like. Um, and strategically, it's it's very compelling to mockery does persuade people, but it's the weakest, shallowest way, especially if there's not substance behind it. 
Um, but he doesn't want to listen to us about morality. Well, rationality rules Stephen Woodford is a determinist. And so he thinks that, you know, on determinism, he recognizes, and I appreciate the consistency here, that that means that whatever anybody does, they couldn't help it. They were determined. So if they build wells for thirsty people in developing world countries, um, you can praise them and maybe you should, but, you know, they couldn't do anything else. They couldn't help it. Likewise, if someone kills a family, then he couldn't help it. And we should maybe actually just feel sorry for them. Now, I get feeling sorry for people, uh, but the idea that they couldn't help it because they were determined um, is pretty rough. It makes morality a completely a moot point. And you say, well, surely he wouldn't say that someone kills a family. They, they couldn't help it. Well, watch this clip. You fully accepted a moment ago that uh, a man who kills somebody's family is not morally accountable. Mm -hmm. A man who kills somebody's family is not morally accountable. You accepted that a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, guess what? I actually, as, as horrific as that is, because let's actually make it more serious, okay? And I've been saying this a lot lately, but let's make it more serious. Because when you're trying to test philosophical hypotheses and things in ethics, and that you test them at the fringes, right? Here we're going to test it at the fringes. When someone is a racial hater and kill someone, torture someone because they hate them just because of their race. On this worldview, the deterministic worldview, he has to say, you know, really, they're not blameworthy. They're not, they're not culpable. They, they, they couldn't help it. They couldn't help it. Now, that doesn't mean that Woodford wouldn't argue that they should be put in jail. Yeah, he would. I think he would say that. Um, more of a utilitarian reason than anything else. But if determinism is true... You know, that that's he couldn't help it. He was determined to do that. And we're going to talk about morality. You don't want to listen to us on morality. I don't want anyone to listen to that because of what it does to morality. So you see how that works. We can both play that game. And as long as you're a determinist, we are going to end up playing it better because that puts you at a serious, serious disadvantage. In the end, um, I, I do uh, like the... Uh, the, you know, this is funny. The thing about Kevin Bertuzzi instead of Cameron, because William Lane Craig did call him Kevin by accident. That's hilarious. I actually agree with him that humor can be useful to make a point. But beyond that, I think he's, I think he ends up missing the point quite a bit. It's like, it's like he's making a career out of missing the point or something. Um, but I do like him. I like him. I could hang out with him. I think we'd have a good time in conversation, but beyond that, there's no content here. And underneath it, there's this veil of, just keep mocking, guys. It's working. Now, again, I don't think Stephen thinks that or would say that, but that's where we are. By the way, um, I hope that you've enjoyed this. And listen, if you want to help us out, um, you can give to us at patreon.com slash trinityradio. Um, the link is in the description of this video. It really helps us out. You get there five seminary-level courses with PowerPoint, along with several books that I've written free, as well as a couple of books by other people, uh, episodes that we've never released, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, but don't do it because you want that stuff, because you might not like that stuff. Do it uh, if you believe in what we're doing in responding to atheism on YouTube. I hope that you will check that stuff out. I hope that it'll be a blessing to you. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. <laughs>